the show for six weeks. I mean, what's six weeks? I'll give you anything, but don't ask me to do six weeks. I can't take over the show for six weeks. I can't even take over my own life for six weeks. And you're asking me to do something that's impossible. It's impossible. Don't you understand? What? What are you doing down there so late? Hello and welcome to the Beniverse Movie Channel. My name is Ben Friedman. I am a film critic. And today we are not starting because we're a few days into our Scorsese series. It gets confusing when you're recording them out of order. But we are talking the king of comedy. With me today is my guest, Brian Rowe from the YouTube channel, The Awards Contender. Brian, how are you? Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing great. How are you? Good. I am so excited to talk King of Comedy with you. You were the first guest that I think I had gone in contact with. And I gave you at that point the the litter. I'm like, whatever movie you want, you, I'll just sign you up. And you said King of Comedy. I'm like, perfect. Because this is a movie near and dear to my heart. And I'm just really excited to talk to you about it. Yeah, I, man, I could have I could have asked for Raging Bull, I could have asked for Goodfellas, and I you chose this movie. You could have literally asked any movie of Scorsese's. <laughs> you could have done the documentaries, you could have done the features, yeah. you could have even been like, I'm going to claim Killers of the Flower Moon now. <laughs> but no, I, you took King of Comedy, and I respect you so much for this, because I have a lot of thoughts. It's one of my favorite Scorsese, just spoiler alert, just it is one of my favorites he's ever done. I'm dressed as Pumpkin, Pumpkin right here. Uh, pumpkin, Pumpkin. I always mix up the yeah, name. Yeah, it's not pump. It's not Pumpkin. You don't. There's no M. It's Pumpkin. Yeah, yeah it's P U P K I N. It's a great name. It's a great name. And so we're just gonna just jump into this. But before we actually get into the King of Comedy, Brian, I just wanted to ask you a few questions first, if you wouldn't mind just introducing who you are, uh, what you do in this YouTube slash movie review space. Yeah, so my name is Brian Rowe, and I host a YouTube channel called The Awards Contender, and it's mostly focused on the Oscars, but I'm also doing Emmy coverage. I also, of course, talk about like the Golden Globes and SAG and BAFTA and those things uh, at the beginning of the year, but it's mostly an Oscar YouTube site where every week I have like between two and three videos. Uh, sometimes it's predictions about upcoming Oscars. Sometimes it's a retrospective looking at a best actress race from 1997 or looking at, you know, a race from like the 1930s. It's kind of a mix of all kinds of Oscar, Oscar stuff because it goes all the way back, of course, to the late 1920s. So there's a lot of content there. I have loved the Academy Awards since I was a kid, and it's just been kind of a dream of mine to do this like full time. I just started doing YouTube uh, full-time at the beginning of July and so it's just I'm having a blast so far it's really fun you said something that like really scared me which is this idea that you're not only just doing Oscars but you're also doing the Emmys which yeah. is how do you keep up with that because that's the reason <laughs> I fell out of TV because I can't keep up with it anymore oh I so in terms of keeping up with it like I didn't make any Emmy prediction videos for like what's going to be nominated because I'm a little bit out of the loop there I, I hmm. try to watch as much as I can but once we have like official nominations, <laughs> yeah. then I can like take the time for a couple of weeks, go back, maybe fill in the blanks, a few shows I might have missed over the last few months, and then really talk about like who has the best chance of winning in each of these, especially the acting categories is what I'm going to focus on. 
Yeah, and that's kind of how I do it too. I generally try to see the big shows that are nominated and then I don't end up watching any of them besides <laughs> I think I think out of the past like three years, the big shows that I've watched were Barry, uh Ted Lasso season one. I didn't watch season mm. two or three. And I think I started succession. I think I started I definitely started succession and then never got back into it. So that's my TV. That's I have such a hard relationship with TV now just because I going full time in the movies, I just couldn't devote any time to TV anymore. Right. I devote my mornings to TV. Like in the morning, I try to watch two episodes of a show of whatever it may be. And thankfully, most of the shows now are like eight, eight to 10 episodes. It's not like in the 90s where every show you watch would have like 24 episodes. <laughs> so it's usually it doesn't take too long. I can get through a show in four days, typically. Um, so that's that's what I use my mornings for with breakfast. And then afternoon evenings are for film. That's how I run my life. <laughs> there was a moment, like really briefly, as I was coming up with the inception of this Scorsese podcast, I'm like, I'm going to cover everything Scorsese has done. And I'm that means Boardwalk Empire. Since he was the oh, wow. on it, I'll do that. And then I like actually watched, like not watched, sorry. I saw how many episodes are in each season and how long they are. And like, uh, I, I can't commit to this. This is such a terrible commitment idea by me. So I give you full credit. Like I said, I, I, I don't do TV anymore. It's just been, I don't have the, I've never had the attention span for TV. Outside of like 20 minute sitcoms, I don't have the attention span <laughs> to sit and watch TV anymore. No, I understand. But to really appreciate the king of comedy, our film today, you need, need to have at least some appreciation for TV, right? You are completely correct. <laughs> and that is a great transition for us to start focusing in on the King of Comedy, which, again, this is a real big movie that I just love. And I'm going to just give some brief history about the King of Comedy, because this is actually one of Scorsese's, I wouldn't say lesser known. I think this film has gotten a little bit more acclaim as the years have gone on. Uh, sadly, I think Joker actually brought this film probably the most public attention and maybe to some degree revitalized its like fame, which is kind of that's a lot. And that's a very loaded discussion that I'm sure we may even touch into. But the King of Comedy, for those who do not know it, which where are my notes for it? Jeez, I can't believe. Sorry, I'm list. There it is. Release. Uh, in 1982, which we talked about it before we went on air, was actually released like December of 1982 at one of the where was it? Is a film festival? Is that correct? I don't. I think it just opened somewhere theatrically overseas, and then most everywhere else that came out in '83. Like I always think of it as an '83 release, but if you go on IMDb and some of these places, it says 1982, just because it opened in like one foreign country in December of '82. Do we know what year would have been eligible for Oscars? Which so be, order would be? So yeah, so how so how it works is it, it's about when it comes out in the United States. Okay, it like is. I US. just like I just made a video about uh, Glenda Jackson and her Oscar win for Women in Love. That mm. film opened in the UK in 1969, but she won her Oscar in early '71. So it's like, wait, how'd that happen? Because it didn't open in the United States until 1970. So it's it's based on the U.S. release date for Oscars. Interesting. I did. I like. I think I knew that. And at the same time, I'm just like, there. I mean, the awards are so finicky in the sense that like it will open up in like five theaters, and then it just qualifies, <laughs> and then you don't get to see it until like 
January or February in some cases. Uh, but so with the King of Comedy, it releases in December 1982 overseas. In Iceland. In Iceland. That's the place it opened in December of 82. <laughs> you know, it, that that's weird? a really... I, I'm trying to think why Iceland. Like, uh, does that comedy, like, <laughs> translate over to Iceland? I don't like, feel does like... Someone have, does someone have that article for me to read? Like, whose thinking was, like, before this comes out in the U.S. in February... Let's drop it in a few theaters in Iceland. <laughs> is this a, this is like, a 20th century Fox production, right? Right. Some executive at Fox, like he did the math on it. He or she, but being in the 1980s, I'm going to just guess it was a he. He did the math. He was just like, this is the movie. This is where it's going to release. And this is the strategy we need to release it to. And it all starts with this idea that it needs to be in Iceland. And somebody else at the studio was like, that's genius. Just this compelling argument with it. So the King of Comedy releases in 1982. Technically, for most of us, we see it in 1983. If you were alive in 1983, or maybe you did it because it wasn't a huge financial success upon its release. But this is the eighth feature film directed by Martin Scorsese, which is kind of crazy that he's already at eight in 1983. Uh, It's his fifth collaboration with Robert De Niro. Uh, For those who do not know what The King of Comedy is, The King of Comedy is a dark comedy crime film that follows schmuck Rupert Pupkin, an overconfident, narcissistic, obsessive comedian who worships talk show host Jerry Langford, played by Jerry Lewis. Pupkin believes himself to be the next big star, and if only Jerry would give him a chance to do his act on the show, but when things don't go Rupert's way, he will stop at nothing to get his way. Because as Rupp, uh, sorry, as Pupkin states, it's better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. The King of Comedy also stars Sandra Bernhard, Diane Abbott, and Shelley Hack. And that's where we kind of start with this. And I think I just read the line that I think is the perfect summation of the movie, which is it is better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. Brian, before we actually jump into our real conversation, which is going to be a loaded conversation just due to what's going on in the 1980s, specifically uh, the incident that happens in 1981 with the presidential not assassination attempt on Reagan, mm. John Hinckley Jr., how that all relates to this film. I just want to ask you before we get into the real layers of this film, what is your relationship with Martin Scorsese as a filmmaker? Oh, I have loved his work since probably high school. I mean, I might have even seen a couple of his films in middle school because I got it really into movies around sixth grade, seventh grade. And this is just like, once you get interested in cinema, you get to Scorsese pretty fast. Like he's been around for 50 years. He's made at least 10 like amazing films, I would argue. And so you eventually get to him. I feel like most people probably see something like Goodfellas first. And that's probably what happened with me as well. That's probably the one that came out. I mean, it it came out when I was seven, so I would have been too young to see it. But that was the one you heard a lot of talk about throughout the 90s. It's like one of the classic, modern classic great films of the 90s. And so that was probably the first film of his I saw in the mid to late 90s. And then I just started seeing everything, right? Once you see one of his great movies, you want to see everything this guy does. And I would say by college, I had seen almost everything he had done. And... Very excited for his next film coming soon, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, and what's so interesting about how he mentioned like Goodfellas is probably most young people's introduction 
to Scorsese. I'm trying to think. I don't think that was my introduction to Scorsese. I so if I'm correct, I think Wolf of Wall Street is mm. the first movie of his that I see because that movie comes out. I'm probably about 15 when that movie comes out. And obviously for the Leonardo DiCaprio of it all, uh, the trailers of it all was just like what when you were, I, I'm sure you can't imagine this, but when you're like uh, 14 and Margot Robbie like pops off on the screen uh, <laughs> in the trailer and you got Leonardo DiCaprio and you got drugs everywhere. It's like a really exciting time in your life. <laughs> and it's just like a really like what is happening. There's like it it feels so something you just want to see. Like there's such a dirtiness to that trailer and such a grittiness. And it's now obviously now seeing what the Wolf of Wall Street is and not being 14 years old. I can appreciate what that film is trying to say, but it's such a loud trailer. It's played to Black Skinhead by Kanye West is the song playing over it. Like it just seemed like a movie. My mom was disgusted by the trailer. Like it just <laughs> everything about it made me want to see it. So I think that's my first real introduction to Scorsese as a filmmaker. And what's then interesting is then, you know, I'm now starting to go backwards. Like that's where I start going and watching the other ones. And I have a weird relationship with him because I'm watching his films far too young and I'm not getting them. Like I'm just <laughs> simply like there is a wall between me and the movies that he's making. I think I see Taxi Driver around 14 or 15. And the movie held nothing for me. I just, I didn't get it. Mm. I found it like not powerful. I, did, I I just didn't like watching this movie. Goodfellas, I was never like a kid who was really into these gangster storytelling. So there was like parts of that movie that were lost on me, even though I enjoyed that the first time I saw it. Again, going back to these movies like years later, like now like a decade later, you know, these are films that I love, but the, my first introductions to them all are like a little weird king of comedy though is the film that like i got like that was the film that i found fun of his like that was the film that actually like i understood what it was trying to say i think it's become way more relevant today than it was in 1983 which is pretty shocking because it's because it's a really relevant movie for 1983 and king of comedy is the film that's kind of stuck with me since you know this is a film that when I'm in college and I'm uh, majoring in history, like this is my thesis paper. I write it on John Hinckley Jr. Mm. mentally disturbed, how that is weaponized by the right wing Reagan people at the time, uh, how Scorsese responds with the King of Comedy, et cetera, et cetera. So that relationship of taxi driver, John Hinckley Jr., right wing politics, all of that. So that's like, this is the film of his that I always find myself returning to and based on what you said ryan it sounds like you have a similar relationship where this is a film you've seen multiple times what do you think makes this film a movie that you want to turn on over and over again yeah so i first saw the king of comedy in high school and i loved it and it wasn't until much later i was like oh this is not a movie a lot of people like by scorsese <laughs> like this hmm. This was at least at the time, right? Maybe it's it's grown in stature over the last couple decades, but you know when this came out, it was a major flop, and it was not a success like Raging Bull had been, like Taxi Driver had been, especially with like the Oscars and things. Uh, the King of Comedy did not get a single Oscar nomination, 
but I've watched this movie seven or eight times probably since high school. And every time I watch it, I love every second. The time just flies by. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand anyone who doesn't like this movie. Like, I just think everything about it is great, especially when you like piece together the history of like, oh, they had just made Raging Bull. Like, if you put Raging Bull and this next to each other, it's like weird. What a weird choice to go from Raging Bull, like very macho movie, and then two and a half years later, uh, you know, Robert De Niro is playing like the biggest geek in movies. Yeah. And it's like, it's just such an interesting pairing of like, what do we do now? King of comedy. Okay. And it's so interesting to me with this movie too, with like this idea of going from Raging Bull to King of Comedy. I think people, some people have the misconception of who Scorsese is as a director. And they're like, this guy is a full on gangster type director Mm. like he only makes gangster movies he only makes crime movies and that's not to say king of comedy isn't necessarily a crime movie but his variation in genre is kind of outstanding like the guy's made every type of movie and king of comedy is just such a specific flavor within his filmography that and i think it's very purposefully uh designed this way too and we'll get into some of the production history of this movie but in some ways, this feels like the least Scorsese of Scorsese's movies. And then in other ways, this is like a Scorsese movie through and through in its DNA and maybe is the most honest representation of Scorsese as a filmmaker. What's so interesting to me is, again, going into The King of Comedy, the production history of this. Uh, I was watching an interview with the writer of this film, Paul Zimmerman, before we went on air. He's talking on Letterman in like 1983 about it. And this script, like, is written by 1973, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, at this point, Scorsese, it's not that he's a, not necessarily a nobody, because he's made Mean Streets, but he's pre-Taxi Driver. He, I think at that point when the script is written, he had just maybe released Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Like, that's the period that we're in. And it's so interesting then watching this film, because it's so not tied to Scorsese in its inception, but yet it only feels like a film that Scorsese would direct. And just, I I was astounded by this. Some of the other directors attached were Michael Cimino, Milos Forman, and Bob Foss, I believe is how you pronounce his name, director of Cabaret. And thinking about that, I just, I can't imagine anybody but Scorsese making this movie. Yeah, Bob Bob Fosse, I think is how you say it. Fosse? He uh, he was like interested in this movie, and he picked a film called Star Eighty instead, uh, the Dorothy Stratton story that came out, I think, the same year in '83. But I, if I remember right, I read something that uh, that Robert De Niro brought this project to Scorsese's attention, like in the '70s, like as something that they could do together. But I the one he this... really wanted to make was Raging Bull, and that came first. And I think if I'm correct, this follows basically Mean Streets. I think I think De Niro gets the script post Mean Streets before mm. Taxi Driver. And there's this idea where he's like, I want Scorsese to direct this movie post our success of Mean Streets. And Scorsese talks about it where he's just like, I didn't connect to the screenplay at all. Like, I didn't get it. I just, I didn't really see it as any of interest of me. And this is really Robert De Niro's passion project as much as it feels like a Scorsese film. Like this mm-hmm. is Robert De Niro was the one championing this film. He wanted to get it. It sounds like the closest one 
was Milos Forman. Milos Forman, I think, post, uh, he's once one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? Is him. Mm-hmm. I, I think this was kind of like, you know, he comes off the heat of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, sweeping the Oscars. And then there's this discussion had, and I think there is like, based on everything that De Niro has talked about, it really sounds like Foreman was going to be the guy until like 1979, where there was some studio issues. It all just kind of falls apart and De Niro ends up signing on for uh, Raging Bull. And they kind of take a delay on this. And then between 1980 and 1982, this movie takes on a completely new resonance and one that's very personal to uh, Scorsese because of John Hinckley Jr. And the shooting that happens in March of 1981, where John Hinckley Jr. uh, tries to assassinate President Reagan, Uh, he does so. And this is just context for people who aren't as familiar with this period of uh, history. He does so to try to impress Jodie Foster. And it kind Mm. of, there's this history of it where you go back, you see John Hinckley Jr. He's in LA in 1976. And guess which movie he's watching religiously? Taxi Mm. Driver. And he mm. just, he's watching it over and over again. He's styling himself. He's drinking the peach brandy that Travis Bickle drinks in Taxi Driver. This guy's obsessed with it. And there becomes a moment in really media writing. And it's a, at some cases, a really dark time for film criticism because there is legitimate questions on should Martin Scorsese have made Taxi Driver? And what is the king of comedy and this is dangerous and we shouldn't mm. we shouldn't one allow people to see this movie and two he is a dangerous human being for making this because he's inspiring people like Hinckley and it's such an interesting conversation to have which I just out of curiosity like of everything I, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is what's your opinion on that this whole I, I I have never heard that before. So you're saying that so I mean there's obviously a lot of connections to Taxi Driver. He did that for Jodie Foster. He was watching Taxi Driver a lot in 76 and that all led to this assassination attempt. Uh so this incident happens and that is a push to Scorsese to make King of Comedy to kind of like talk about that like obsessive fandom and where that can lead was kind of the idea behind that. I'd never heard that before. I don't necessarily know if this is what inspired Scorsese to make King of Comedy, but it is very interesting that this movie basically happens, takes production within a year. Right. Post, no, you're probably uh, right. It probably had something to do with it. Yeah. There was and, probably some nugget there that Scorsese thought, I want to explore that idea. Yeah. Because Scorsese is getting blasted in the news during this time for Taxi Driver. I mean, essentially when John Hinckley Jr. is on trial, taxi driver is on trial too they show taxi driver in his like uh in the courtroom like they show it they screen it for Mm. all the uh 12 attendees or attendees jurors and like so there is this kind of perception at that point then like taxi driver is to blame for uh martin scorsese and we'll get into that with some of the reviews but jumping i guess more focused into the king of comedy brian my question for you is what is your hill to die on for this movie? <laughs> My hill to die on for the King of Comedy is that I think it's one of his three best movies of all of them. I'm going to one-up you. I think it's my favorite. Oh, it's your favorite of <laughs> yes. all of them? 
Scorsese. Oh, wow. And maybe it's just because I have such a personal relationship because I studied this film for like a year straight. I've Mm -hmm. watched this film. I can't imagine how many times I rewatched this film while doing my thesis paper. I've come back to this film. I there's just something there. This is the one of the rare movies. Not that I just rewatched because I'm I try to watch so many movies that I find it hard sometimes to rewatch my favorites. Mm-hmm. This is the one that gives me an itch each time when I want to watch it. Like I start feeling like I want to put on King of Comedy, and every time I watch the movie, I get something really new and fundamental to the movie that I've never noticed before. And it's just a completely new layer to uh, the King of Comedy, which is. Again, so interesting because when this movie comes out, it's not necessarily panned by critics, but it's not loved. It is mm-hmm. not a raging bull universal masterpiece kind of a claim to it. It's a soft reception, I think, fair to put. Mm-hmm. Roger Ebert writes something uh, <laughs> where he's basically, this is an unpleasant movie to watch. Now, he gives it three out of uh, four stars, basically saying it's an unpleasant, it's a hard movie to watch, and yet I'm still I'm fascinated by it. Uh, Pauline Kael, uh, who was writing for, I think, The New Yorker at that time, she just flat out dislikes this movie. And that's kind of the criticism you hear of this movie. People talk about it as being not a fun movie to watch, a challenging movie to watch, and one that they never want to rewatch again. Which, was this always, when you're watching King of Comedy, now, do you think it's aged better? Yeah, I mean, it must have aged better because for some reason, a lot of the criticism back in 83 is that it's hard to watch. It's unpleasant. And I find it, I mean, maybe they were just expecting a different kind of Scorsese film they were used to. And then this is not that. And maybe because this was one of the first films I saw and I just kind of grew up with it. Like it it didn't, uh, you know, scare me away or anything. I find it one of the most like breezily entertaining of his movies, like some of his films, even his really good films, are hard to watch more than once. Mm-hmm. And this one I can put on like once a year if I had to, and I'd be happy to. It's just a fun watch. I, I think it's really entertaining. Yeah, it's so weird to me because this is a movie that like, one, it follows Raging Bull, which I love Raging Bull. That's not a fun movie to watch. That That's one is a much harder actual, movie to watch. Like, <laughs> way harder for me to watch. I think it's kind of mixed with this John Hinckley Jr. I think the big thing that is coming out of me when I'm reading all the writings from the 1980s reviewers talking about this movie is I just don't know if they were ready for this movie yet. It, it is so close to following not only cause don't forget we had the Hinckley incident. We also had Chapman uh, in New York killing John Lennon, I think December of 1980. And we have the actress who plays Joe Pesci's wife in Raging Bull. She's, you know, Mm. stopped and stabbed by a fan, I think like March of 1981, like a month after the Hinckley incidents. So this idea of like an obsessive fan is so prevalent in the news at that time and the news cycle that I think people started seeing it. And I, did you get a chance to watch the trailer for this movie? No, is it, does it have footage not in the film? No, it doesn't. But what's so interesting is they present it as, you know, the kind of the sitcom style of, Mm. uh, and then it's just like this introduction, like you are now about to meet the new king of comedy. And it's really sinister for a hard second. And then it's like, you know, it then has the scene of Rupert Pupkin along with uh, Jerry Langford in the limo 
where they're talking and he's like, mm-hmm. best place to start is the bottom. That's where I am. That's the best <laughs> place to start, which is one of my favorite lines in the movie by far. But it's just, like I said, it's such an interesting topic of critique. And I guess let's just kind of start there because I think that's the best place to start is always the introduction of a film. What's your relationship with Jerry Lewis? Jerry Lewis, I did not really watch his films as a kid. Like my dad was really into Laurel and Hardy and some of these, you know, classic comedians, but not really Jerry Lewis. So I didn't see his work till later. I think maybe in high school, I watched his version of The Nutty Professor. And then I saw a couple of his other films. Yeah, he hasn't been a major presence in my life. And maybe that was also hard for people in 83 to like, take this like serious dramatic performance from Jerry Lewis, <laughs> like in, in a new light. Like, I like he's just for me, he's always just been the talk show host in the King of Comedy. Like That's when I think I of Jerry him. Lewis, I think of this movie. That's how I view him too. And the part that I've been actually wrestling with, with the King of Comedy and Jerry Lewis's casting is I think it's pitch perfect casting in this movie. I think the reason this movie works so effectively is because Jerry Lewis works uh, he's Samuel so good junior <laughs> was like the other guy that they were looking at for uh langford at one point i think that was under the milos foreman script mm. big guy's carson and i just can't picture carson doing this movie right like that makes sense of course they would go to johnny carson for this role but i like I, he did a little acting i think the very beginning of his career but i just i don't see him playing this kind of you know serious dark of a character in this movie and I think the reason that uh, that Lewis works so well in this movie is Jerry Lewis is kind of or was kind of an asshole. <laughs> he's he's like, a big asshole, and he's every great at it. interview I've ever seen of him. I hate him. <laughs> like I just rewatched. They did this. I think it was at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2013. I, I don't know if you've ever seen this clip, but it's they're talking about the King of Comedy. It's uh, De Niro and Scorsese up there. And Jerry Lewis takes the stage like 20 minutes in out of a 30 minute panel. And he's out there and he's just, I, I, he's so gruff with everybody. And specifically uh, there's this clip where Sandra Bernhard like sends in a video to talk to the cast of the King of Comedy. And she's like, says a message to Jerry Lewis. And she's like, Oh, I'll never forget the day you called me fish lips on set and like made me feel really bad about myself. And like Lewis is laughing and that's kind of the, that's who I view Lewis as this gruff, really mean spirited comedy at times. And I think it works largely to this film's benefit actually, because Langford's such jerk. It's an attitude. Like, did we see in any other of his films? I mean, I haven't seen a lot of them, but I, I would imagine most of his screen performances are the more kind of jovial, kind, kind of comic persona. And this is not that at all. Like he is so deadpan in this movie and he can be intimidating at times when he gets out of the tape and he's approaching, you know, Sandra Bernhardt's character hmm. with that look on his face. You're like, oh my God, he's going to kill her. Like he's scary in this movie. He's really, he's really effective. Scorsese uses his size also to a really interesting, mm-hmm. uh, I keep saying interesting, but he uses his size so well because there's times where Langford just looks huge, like just imposing, right. which is then opposite of De Niro, who we don't talk enough about the transformation that De Niro does in this movie, 
because he's doing Raging Bull right before this movie. And he is, you kind of described him a geek. This guy's pathetic. Like, I mean, oh my gosh, Upkin is a worm. Like, it's just, he's this skinny kind of nobody. And it's, but he, but he has a dream, man. And he just goes after it. Doesn't matter if they're throwing him out of the building. If he has to kidnap this guy and put a gun to his head, he's going to make it happen. So there's something admirable about that. <laughs> like he will is, not, no, there, he will there, not stop. <laughs> you, I think you hit on a really crucial point of this movie, which is just like, there's almost something not necessarily honorable yeah. about Rupert, but there is something a little admirable about it. Like this guy. And I think maybe this is why the movie has always worked for me because, you know, I'm in a space right now in film criticism where I have to be overly confident in my abilities. Like if I didn't believe that I was good and like could make a living out of this, I wouldn't be here. Like I just wouldn't be doing this job. Like I have to have a level of confidence in myself. Mm. And you see that in Rupert in this movie, there is a, there is such an overconfidence in himself that works largely to De Niro's just charm in it. Yeah. What amazes me every time I watch this movie, and I forget every time, last night, I was surprised once again, the entire movie, you get the sense that this guy is not good at being a like a, a, a comic, like it's not going to work. And then we get a long take of his entire run of doing his, you know, late night comedy act. And it's like perfection. He That's doesn't flub a line and his jokes land. And it's great. And you don't expect that. <laughs> That's the reason this movie is special because he's funny. Like he is yeah. to a degree, maybe not the best comic, but certainly has talent. Like, and that's the really fun part of this movie. And it's just, just to go back to Joker. That's the reason I don't <laughs> like Joker. Just a lot Joker. of degree is just because I just, I never believe this character or anything about him. And he seems so pathetic on stage. And I think that's supposed to be the point of it pumpkin actually has talent and that's mm -hmm. what makes the movie to some degree uh challenging of uh, let's just jumping back to this opening scene uh one of the things i love about this opening scene as we kind of like kickstart it is like it's a to me this movie has a lot in common with taxi driver and i think this opening scene is really reminiscent of it it feels like it's in direct correspondence with the uh, with the rally scene in Taxi mm. Driver where they're all in the crowd. Uh, you know, you see Travis Bickle there. And I think this scene does the same effect. And it's largely due to the costuming. Uh, Rupert is, you always know where he is on screen just due to the costume. And it's yeah. a brilliant little device that they do, but your eye is always on him in a crowd. Right. And Come Rain or Come Shine is the perfect tonal setting for this movie and the exasperated face on Jerry Lewis's uh, the exasperated look on Jerry Lewis's face is just, again, another just moment where I, I, I knew I was in on this movie rewatching it, Brian, where are you in the movie when it begins? Like, does it take a minute for you to get into the movie or get into this world? Or is it just like fast start for you? No, it's pretty quick. I mean, once, once we're into the cab that that vehicle where they're talking and Langford is just sitting there shaking his head like oh my god okay okay I'll 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 entertain this guy for a few minutes I'll let him talk <laughs> and like I mean just right away you're into it and you know you understand who he is where he's coming from 
He's a very famous late night talk show host. And then you've got this guy who's just, he's clearly just does not belong in that car, but he's just making it work. And he's like, I'm just going to, you know, give a few minutes. Every time I watch the movie, I'm like, I mean, Langford could have just like kicked him out of the car, right? Not listen to a word, like get this guy out of here. And he's like, no, I'll just, I'll entertain him for a few minutes. <laughs> and that always, that always surprises me because he is kind of an asshole. And he's like, well, Hey, that's kind of, that's kind of him to allow him to do that. I've also always like that scene. It's that's one of the moments where I've talked about how my interpretation of the movie changes. I actually always thought the first few times I've watched this movie, I always thought De Niro charms him in the scene. Like right. I thought there was like a little bit of Jerry Langford being like, you know, I like this guy. Yeah. Like he's the seems... only time in the whole movie they have a connection. Yeah. The only time <laughs> that's real that they have a connection. Yeah. Exactly. And that's one of my favorite things. And then we just, the thing they do so well in this movie, along with so many other things is Scorsese really gets you to buy into Rupert as a character before we start seeing some of his more paranoid slash schizophrenic slash delusions of grandeur exposed. And then it comes really quick because we're at this dinner sequence uh, with the Nero and Jerry Langford, or sorry, Rupert Pumpkin and Jerry Langford. And I know I just said pumpkin again. I'm probably going to say that a few <laughs> times because it stops all. One, this is like the perfect setup of an unreliable narrator. And as good as this dinner sequence is, and I'll let you jump in on this, I think my favorite, one of my favorite moments comes right after the dinner sequence where the dream is kind of cut short by Catherine Scorsese, Martin Scorsese's <laughs> actual mother. Yeah. She just yells, Mom, and he, or uh, Rupert, and he just yells, Mom, please stop calling me. <laughs> I love it. I love his like where he lives. Like he's in the basement of his mom's house and he's got this big setup that, you know, he's got Liza Minnelli and Jerry Langford. <laughs> he's like talking to him. And yeah, I was hoping we, we had to talk about like the dream scenes because they're so great. Like Martin Scorsese shoots them as if they're real. Mm -hmm. So the first time we get a dream segment, you're like, oh, okay. Didn't expect. And then, and then it cuts to uh Rupert's side of the conversation like like he's talking to Langford but he, but he's in the basement and so very quickly you understand oh he's just imagining this conversation and we get at least what three or four of those in the movie like that long wedding scene which is hilarious the wedding sequence <laughs> is like secretly like the juice of this movie to some degree where it's just like this guy's actually full-on crazy and so <laughs> self the uh, high school principal isn't the, yeah, the principal there to marry like, him never do anything in your life Dearly beloved, when Rupert here was a student at Clifton High School, none of us, myself, his teachers, his classmates, dreamt that he would amount to a hill of beans. But we were wrong. And you, Rupert, you were right. <laughs> it's, it's such a great use of De Niro. And De Niro is fully game for this performance in a way that I don't think many people i i'm trying to think because i know new york new york comes out before this movie yeah 77 I don't, I don't know if people really see de niro at this time as a guy who can do comedy and in mm. this movie he does it so effortlessly like you would have thought this guy was doing it for years i mean the original cast for 
Hupkin is uh, uh, what is his name from Taxi? Andy Kaufman. Andy mm. Kaufman is the original guy, and you know they base that look that De Niro has in this movie a lot off Kaufman. Mm. Uh, and the reason this, all of it just kind of works together. And one thing I guess we should talk about is Fred Schul, who is the cinematographer on this movie. He ends up having a really great career in TV post The King of Comedy. But that's the thing. This movie feels like a TV movie. Mm. In a lot, of, Like it's very flat in lighting. It's not necessarily cinematic in the ways that we know a Scorsese movie to be. It's really kind of meant to reflect the images that we see on TV and especially live TV, which again is that parallel to me of what didn't sorry what Scorsese is seeing in uh Hinkley and the images you know that are appearing on TV after these shootings that happen. And I I just think it's a perfect use of uh just it's all the crafts coming together to make this movie special. Mm-hmm. yeah and, i mean something i love oh sorry no right. go for it please go for it <laughs> i was gonna say something that i love about this movie is how scorsese kind of stays out of the way like if he had shot the king of comedy like he shoots goodfellas like i don't think i don't think this movie works i mean we have a couple sh- interesting shots like that part where he's pretending like he's performing and there's that giant picture that wallpaper of all of those hmm. people and the camera tracks back for about 30 40 seconds there are some of those but for the most part Scorsese kind of stays out of the way here and just shoots it as you said almost like a tv movie it's a lot of a lot of close-ups of the actors talking back and forth and it doesn't feel like stylistically like a Scorsese movie it's unlike any of his other movies and that's what I'm also always intrigued by here yeah it's it's so stylistically different and everything just feels slightly not even exaggerated, but it just feels so different from him. And it's it's a director challenging himself because this is really the first and only real attempt that Scorsese does with this type of dark comedy satire. Not to say that he hasn't done comedy and dark comedy post this movie because Wolf of Wall Street certainly has mm. shades yeah. of King of Comedy in it, but this is a very... Scorsese is never one of these directors that I think of as a guy who's commentating specifically on the times directly. He does comment Mm. on the present, but he usually does it through looking in the past. This is a movie that feels like the year it is set in 1983. Mm -hmm. It's to the benefit of the film. uh, And one of my favorite aspects of this movie is Rita Keane, who is played by uh, Scorsese's wife at the time, if I'm correct, uh diane abbott oh they were married uh, i, I believe aren't they married i believe diane abbott is maybe they're dating at this time I'm how many thinking. girlfriends does scorsese have he dated all the actresses man he dated uh isabella rossellini uh he who did he date in the 90s he always had a like an actress on his arm <laughs> yeah he always did and it was always a co-star uh, yeah <laughs> it's a very staple of de niro and you know what I was thinking when watching this dinner sequence that Rupert and Rita have? Every movie like this has this dinner sequence where it's just the guy and the way too attractive woman who's some reason at this bar or food place with them. And they're having a conversation and the guy's like largely disconcerting. 
but there's a little bit of a charm to him that like allows the woman to feel a little safe but then it gets like really too intense really quickly we were talking about it did you get to see magazine dreams at sundance yes mm-hmm. this sequence in magazine dreams like there is a sequence where the character played by jonathan majors has this type of conversation with a woman in there and it's the most it's the scariest sequence in the movie that's the most memorable scene (laughs) that scene has haunted me and i now know we're talking about it and no one will ever see this um, (laughs) maybe they will they might (laughs) one day but realistically not for a while but taxi driver has this too like taxi driver has the scene with uh de niro and i'm blinking on the actress sybil shepherd yeah uh shepherd i i i guess i don't necessarily have a question for you here but because I'm I'm kind of at a loss for words here with this. Why does this scene work so well? This dinner sequence they have. Well, I think just tone. Tone is so specific to the King of Comedy. When I think about this movie, I think, you know, like Scorsese and De Niro could have just taken this a little bit in a different direction and it becomes like a horror film. It becomes like a crime film. But it's like, it's so much about character and behavior and it's like we we always know a little bit more about Pupkin than the character the characters in the movie too. Like, like she she sees something in him. Like she wouldn't go with him to see Langford at his summer house or whatever that is where he's playing golf uh, if she didn't believe in him in some way with her like you know beautiful dress and everything. Like I feel like she she likes him and she wants to see where that relationship could go. And so she kind of gives him the benefit of the doubt, but she's also like, there's something off about this guy too. Yeah. But he he wants to please please her. He, he wants to impress her. I mean, at the very end of the movie, like he's in her bar, like, hey, look at the TV. And she's like, whoa. <laughs> and he has, a, he has a really important line in this sequence where it's a guy can get anything he wants as long as he's willing to pay the price, which is the thesis of the movie. Like that is ultimately what the King of Comedy boils down to is that single line of dialogue. Mm. And there's also a moment in this film with uh, De Niro as Pupkin, where he says, Rupert talks about needing to save Rita from her situation, which is, this is the moment in the film where I'm watching and like, you really start feeling this guy's narcissism Mm. where he has this like kind of grand idea that he needs to save this woman from her surroundings. Like he needs to be the knight in shining armor who takes Mm. her away from this bar life. And it's then again, it's then to me paralleled with the Hinckley of it all, because Hinckley says something very similar about uh, Jodie Foster, where he's in his letters, he's writing essentially the same thing. Like I'm here to kind of save you. And Mm -hmm. this is where that parallel of the movie, Brian, what's your favorite performance in this movie? Cause mine's is about to come up. Oh, well, I mean, there's not too many to choose from. They're all great. I, I mean, I think if you had to pick the best performance in the movie, it's obviously Robert De Niro. I mean, I, I don't I don't know what this movie is with anyone else in that role. Like he just he he's so like 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 anti this character when it comes to most of the people he played in films in the 70s, all the way up to Raging Bull in 1980. And it's just and it's the character he I mean, he's. He's played versions of this guy, I would say, since. I mean, he's so prolific, right? He's in so many films. But, hmm. like, this, to me, is one of the very best Robert De Niro performances. Like, it's not... If you've never seen this movie, you've only really seen De Niro in his dramas by Scorsese and then maybe, like, his later stage comedies. Like, you've never seen him play a role like this guy. 
and he just hits it out of the park. He's amazing in this. You're probably right. Like De Niro is probably the correct answer. And I'm still going to go for my answer as Sandra Bernhard. She <laughs> really, yeah, she's good too. So good in this movie. I love her in this movie. I can't believe this girl. Okay, okay, okay Rupert, you. you won't do that. Here, I got money for you. I got plenty what? of money because I can't believe how long I've held out with you and been your friend and listened to your tired, stale, boring jokes. Come on, here's nine hundred dollars. You be quiet. You're young no, in the street. No, no. Like... So take this and give it to Jerry. All right? She's not the necessarily the heart and soul of this movie because I don't think there's necessarily a lot of heart and soul to this character. Yeah, but. What they do so well with the character of Masha, who plays the stalker, uh, who's also stalking Jerry Langford, is I've always seen this character, and it's one that I've the more I watch it, I see her as kind of commentary on misogyny uh, mm. at the time, and just this this idea of having women represented in media versus men, because the exact second we see Masha on screen, she's like crazy. Like we all know she's very crazy from the way she's yelling from the hairstyle and all that thing all that's all that and yet at the same time like pupkin is pupkin pupkin is that level of craziness as well and yet we seem more charmed by him initially Mm. i've always seen this as a little bit and maybe i'm stretching here i've always just seen this as a little bit of scorsese slash maybe more zimmerman really just picking at that and just like isn't it interesting these two characters are both in it at the same time, but you're seemingly empathizing for one person over the other, and it's the man. Mm. That's how I've always viewed this character, and that's why I think this performance is so strong to me, because I think she's playing, I think it's a really difficult role she's asked to, and I think it's largely a thankless role that she kind of just knocks out of the park, because Mm -hmm. she really could just be the crazy uh, stalker is just along for the ride. She really adds a lot of layers to this movie in really wonderful yeah. ways. No, Sandra Bernhard's really great in this. I mean, something that I love about Scorsese's work is even if a film he's making is mostly focused on a man, usually in almost every film he's made, there's a really rich uh, three-dimensional character for a woman. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely the case here. Even though we don't get to learn much about her, like we don't go to her home life, we don't really get a sense of like, where she came from or who she is, but uh, I love her unpredictability. You never really know where she's lurking and what's on her mind. And she she has some great moments at the end when she's just face to face with Jerry Langford and he's all tied up. And 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 uh, I watched a, a making of documentary about the movie where Scorsese said like uh, Jerry Lewis was a little bit nervous like on the days where he was tied up to the chair because. He didn't know what she was going to do. <laughs> he was just like, oh, my God. Like, is she going to start, you know, French kissing me? <laughs> like, what's going on? And and she, there's a fire to her. It's unfortunate. She was in the documentary, too, saying, like, this was the only great role she ever got in the movies ever in her long career. And it's unfortunate because you see her in The King of Comedy. Like, she could have been, like, an Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning actress if she had gotten some really great roles in the years after this. But... At least we have this one. Like, this yeah, she's fantastic. Like, this is her performance, uh, definitely for sure. I Jerry Lewis clearly hates her. I don't know yeah. if people out say it, but like, so I was in that same 2013 Tribeca interview that he does. He talks about how like he he pitched to Scorsese. He's like, what if after I broke out of the like duct tape, I just threw her through the glass table? 
Mm-hmm. And then Scorsese's like, you really want to do that? And he's like, more than you'll ever know. And I'm just like, <laughs> geez, Jerry, uh, let's, let's talk about favorite scene in this movie. Our favorite scenes in the movie. What is your favorite scene in the movie? My favorite scene, if not, I mean, you might call it a sequence, is the the segment of the movie where he's up in the office, Rupert Pupkin's up in the office trying to get some, like, trying to get hold of Jerry Jerry Langford, mm-hmm. but also just trying to get like the attention of anyone in the building, mm-hmm. and just there's like this weird suspense every time I watch that because you know he doesn't really belong there. Nobody in the building wants him there, but they're kind of like talking to him. The woman comes back and she says, okay, we'll take a look at the tape. And he's like, well, when are you going to, when are you going to know your answer by? And, and when can I talk to Jerry? And she's like, oh, probably it's, this is Thursday. And she's like, oh, probably Monday. And he's like, I'll just wait. I'll mm. just, I'll, I'll wait. And he I'll sits wait. there. <laughs> and he, like the, the awkward cringe of that, this segment of the movie him finally being forced out of the building after he's really awful to her, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's like, listen to the tape, really enjoyed it. Um, you're not quite ready yet to, you know, be with Jerry or on his show, but if you start performing, call us, we'll have someone come take a look. And he's like, are you speaking for Jerry? Mm-hmm. Like, is this your opinion? And he's awful to her. And she's just got her smile on her face. Like she's think you can see on her face. She's like, get this guy the hell out of here. Yeah. <laughs> but- and- what I love all about- of that is great and him coming back in and like storming through shouting Jerry <laughs> that whole segment is perfection I love that part of the movie most of all what I love about this sequence too is like it's again this idea of like we all have this human relationship to Rupert in the sense that we all know what it feels like to believe in ourselves and advocates for ourselves and we all know what it's like to like dress up nicely quote unquote for Rupert mm-hmm like to really believe yourself to be there and then kind of get rejected and that feeling of just like, wait, what? Like, that's it. Like, this is over. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's all like I'm going to get. So there is that human relationship that we have with Jerry in that moment where it's just like, no, I get like, not Jerry, sorry with Rupert. Like I get that emotion he's feeling at the stage. It's the way he expresses it, which is again, the feelings of a narcissist. (laughs) <laughs> what I also then love about this is it's such an homage to Laurel and Hardy. I find like the scene where he's running through the ha- hallways and the, <laughs> yeah, back and forth. Chase, the security's like chasing <laughs> just feels like so 1910 slapstick comedy. Uh, <laughs> I have two of my favorite scenes actually kind of come back to back. My second favorite one is the kidnapping sequence where they finally kidnap uh, Jerry yep. Lewis. And, and I find the cue cards joke. <laughs> He's so funny where he has the gun and pointed at uh, Jerry and he's like, you know, he's throwing the cards and then like one of them's upside down and Jerry's yeah. like, it's upside down. He's like, yeah, what fast. is it? One card, one card's upside down. One card's blank. One card's turned around. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, and he's, and, and Jerry's trying to get through this spiel and he's like, it's, it's upside down. <laughs> yeah. It's just, and the deadpan that Jerry Lewis has to it. <laughs> It's so just pitch perfect. My favorite scene in the movie is when Rupert arrives to the uh, the home unexpected. Open the goddamn door, Mr. Langford. Standing out there eight minutes. What was the door? Jesus. Where are they? Uh, I was going to call the police, but I wait for you. Hi, Jerry. How are you, friend? Hi, Jerry. 
How are you? We were just freshening up upstairs. This is my favorite scene in the movie. One, because it has one of my favorite jokes in the movie. In fact, my favorite joke in the movie. But it is such a... This is the scene that I think really paints De Niro's Pupkit. Pupkit. Gonna keep doing it for the rest of this episode. As who he is. In the sense that when we're as a as a movie watcher, like this is the moment where I'm just like, this guy's full on crazy and dangerous. <laughs> and like you you're now starting to feel the panic for Rita. You feel the danger for uh uh for Rita as well, and you feel the danger for Jerry, but it's it's all capped perfectly in this great joke that's delivered by Jerry Lewis, where Rupert says, I made a mistake. And Jerry Lewis just belts at him. And apparently this was an improv line. So did Hitler. Right, I can take a hint. If I didn't tell you that, we'd still be standing on the steps of my apartment. Yeah, all right. So I made a mistake. I so, did Hitler. so did Hitler. So did Hitler. Every time it comes up in the movie, it's like my favorite scene. It's just the most random joke. I don't know how he came up with it on set. Just that was the idea that he was going to yell. This is my favorite sequence in the movie. Just straight up yeah it's funny you mentioned those two scenes they're great you know if i if they're watching it again last night i'm like if there's one criticism i have on the about the movie i sometimes wonder throughout the whole film if jerry langford's a little bit too low-key about everything you know this guy Hmm. just this random stranger getting in his car and instead of kicking him out he's like okay i'll listen to this guy i'll talk to him and then he like he just shows up at his house and he walks in with his golf club and he just stands there he kind of just like dips his head and just listens to him talk and talk and talk. And he's just like, all right, you got to go. <laughs> and like, and then when they yeah. grab him with the gun there, if you watch that scene closely, like Jerry Langford has a good four seconds to bolt to run. Mm. And he just kind of stands there like this. And then they pull and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. he, and he doesn't fight back. I mean, I know he's got a gun to his head by this crazy woman, but he, like, he knows how kind of stupid this pupkin guy is. You, you think that like who Jerry Langford is, he feels like someone who could stand up for himself a, a little bit more throughout the movie. I always kind of, that always baffles me a little bit why he's so low key the whole he time. Almost, he seems like almost more like just bored at everything. <laughs> yeah, going on like, like he doesn't seem to have he, a good life. <laughs> the scene where he just like walks into his home. Yeah. And it's like, by himself. A few moments, he's like kind of just vibing. Like he's just kind of <laughs> wants to hear what Pupkin is going to say. And like, there's this, just this brief reaction. I don't know if it's intentional. I don't know if it's just who Jerry Lewis is. He sees Rita Keen and his eyes kind of go up. Yeah. Like he's like, oh, oh, pretty. <laughs> yeah. Like, like there is just this moment where he's just like, what's going on? Like I've and- always read it as like, I feel like he thinks he's, uh, he's indestructible and he's just mm. like, he can put up with this stuff. But it is always kind of a question that lingers when I watch the movie each time. I'm like, like he he seems like he could just like look up at you know Sandra Bernhard's character and and just smash that that gun out of her hand. You know, like he's he he seems like he's stronger as a person than he sometimes is portrayed throughout the movie. He has like almost a delay to him as a character when watching him, <laughs> where I'm just like, oh, he's going to what's it called? He's doing this all. But he's kind of just going along with it for as long as he can. And then eventually he's just like, okay, I'm, I'm, I want out of here. Yeah. For a little bit, he's like, because even the scene where he's on the phone 
uh, and the cue cards are being played. He mm-hmm. doesn't look particularly scared. He never looks no, really scared like... in this movie. He's just like, like it's so indifferent to him. And maybe that's a comment on celebrity culture slash kind of out of touch celebrity. This where yeah. he kind of feels himself as indestruct- uh, indestructible. When watching this movie again, there's this scene that I had never noticed until I watched it again. Cause I watched it. I think I've watched it three times this past week, just kind of for preparation. Oh, wow. And there's this moment that I've never gotten this feeling watching this movie, but it's the moment where he goes, where Rupert goes to the state, the studio again, Mm. he goes up to Kathy and she's just like, what do you want? And there's this moment where he just says, I'm the king. I think you're expecting me. You'll see. A couple of bells. Miss Long. No, it's Mr. Pupkin, Miss Long. Mr. Pupkin, how are you? What are you doing here, Mr. Pupkin? I'm the king. I think you're expecting me. Yeah. Yes, Mr. Thomas, you And I've never had this feeling before watching the movie. But after he said that line, I'm like, fuck yeah, you're the king. <laughs> like I just like I was kind of like a fist bumper. I'm like, God damn right you are. Like yeah. it was such a weird feeling because after I'm like, oh yeah, that's like kind of terrible. Like that's not even kind of like that's such a disgusting, like you know, narcissistic moment. But it's just also just like it's it's De Niro's confidence in himself as a performer, where he's just like, you always want to see what this guy's gonna do, and that's the yeah. celebrity fetish of this movie. That's that's that Scorsese playing with all the tools he has as an act, uh, as a director utilizing. Yeah, I should say. And I think that's I think you you know kind of pinpointed why a lot of people, especially at the time, turned against this movie because the main character is very unlikable, narcissistic, and he gets everything he wants. Like yeah. Jerry Langford, his last shot in the movie is him walking down that sidewalk and seeing Rupert Pumpkin all over the. TVs doing his late night comedy bit. And then we have a we have an epilogue where we find out like he writes a best-selling autobiography, a memoir, and becomes a celebrity at the end, just like he wanted. Like, yeah, it's it's he's so not, he's not, he, he's not, he doesn't get a comeuppance at the end. And Jerry Langford, you know, has like this really like heroic like, no, we don't get that in this movie. Like the bad guy wins in a way. And it's this part that I was reading Roger Ebert's review today, and there was a specific few sentences he had on it. And I think it's a perfect summation. And again, this is a guy who appreciated the movie the more he saw it. And he's talking about, he writes this review after seeing it a second time. This sounds like an entertaining story, I suppose. But Scorsese doesn't direct a single scene for a payoff. The whole movie is an exercise in cinema interrupts. Even a big scene in a bar where Rupert triumphantly turns on the TV set to reveal himself on television is deliberately edited to leave out the payoff shots, reaction shots of the amazed clientele. Scorsese doesn't want laughs in this movie, and he doesn't want release. The whole movie is about the inability of the characters to get any kind of positive response to their bids for recognition. And Mm. I think he hits a lot in that. Now, I I don't necessarily know if I agree with the end where he says, the characters to get any kind of positive response to their bids of, for recognition. Cause it does very much feel that by the end of the movie, maybe this is him just trying not to spoil it, but it really does feel like Rupert wins and does get that response he wants. Now 
have you kind of wrapping this whole conversation up and we can kind of focus on this last scene, which is him giving the stand-up monologue, mm. becoming the king of comedy, essentially. Did you ever interpret this scene as a dream? Like him? No, I re- I've read that. I've heard that, like, that the last five to ten minutes is a dream, that he doesn't actually appear on TV. Nothing that happens in that epilogue actually comes to to happen but i i think it does like i always read that as literal because we're seeing him and other people in the bar watching the segment like we see rita like watching it like wow like she's amazed like and there's nothing to me that suggests at the end that this is fake like it feels like it happened that's how i've always read it i've always read it the same way because i've read that same interpretation and i while i think there's it's interesting to dive into it and i think there are certainly layers to that I do find Scorsese's direction is very clear in this movie where once we are daydreaming with Pupkin, Pupkin, it is a very obvious and it's very clear cut. And I feel like Rupert is an unreliable narrator, but Scorsese as a director directing this movie is not an unreliable narrator. So I do think it is quite focused in this scene. So I've never interpreted the ending as anything but true like i do believe this does happen to rupert in this world i think scorsese would have given us a little little like very tiny something to suggest that it was fake like maybe you know right at the end of his you know comic monologue he like we get a cut of him like inside of his basement like Mm -hmm. next to liza manelli or something like i think he would have given us a little something but because he doesn't, he treats it as reality all the way through the end. I, I I do see it as this is what actually happened. And what I love about this, because one thing that I found myself thinking about when watching this movie is I had just recently rewatched JFK, Oliver Stone's JFK, and that's a very cynical movie. And I was then comparing Oliver Stone to Martin Scorsese. And I'm like, there's a very different style of directing and storytelling that these two people have uh stone being a cynic and i've never was thinking about it i'm like you know scorsese makes really dark films really disturbing films i wouldn't say he's a cynical film director like he's very sincere in his art and you can Mm -hmm. feel that coming through in his writing this is the one film that really of his filmography that really ends cynically like this is such (laughs) a dark look and belief of american society i guess wolf of wall street has that to a degree as well again so happens to be the two really big famous dark comedies he's done Mm -hmm. but there is when this film ends i'm like oh my god like scorsese is this is anger like coming through that is palpable on screen yeah i mean he this movie could have ended with just the monologue and he sees it on tv and he's smiling and Rita is proud of him. And then, and then they throw him into jail and that's the end, but it really does end with triumph. Like that last shot is like a big tracking shot from the very back of a studio all the way to a close up of Pupkin. And he's made it like he is doing what he wanted to do. He had to go to jail for what, two and a half years. But while he, while he was in prison, he wrote a best selling memoir and they're flying off the shelves, and now he's a big star. Yeah, he's the king. He's the king. Like I, like I, I don't think that could happen. <laughs> like I don't know if there's like I mean maybe maybe it has. I'm just like maybe it flew out of my head. Like the idea of someone doing something that heinous, like 
like getting on a show by having someone else like point a gun at the, at the main host and then three four years later we're all we're all clapping but uh yeah, well, I mean, maybe maybe turn to politics <laughs> and this is, I, jerry lewis had a lot of pitches for this movie and i'm glad they didn't necessarily take any of jerry lewis's pitches in consideration but i if i'm correct i think jerry lewis wants this movie to end with rupert shooting uh jerry jerry, jerry lewis. lewis yeah i read a quote yesterday it's something like, like uh, jerry lewis liked the film but he felt it didn't have a, an ending yeah, Maybe was... he was just referring to his character because Langford really doesn't get a big resolution. I think part I think that's part of the point. Like it's not really about him. It's more about Pupkin in the in the third act anyway. But yeah, I I read a thing where he said he wanted Pupkin to kill him at the end. But I'm like, well, Pupkin's not even there. Like, what would that ending have even looked like? Like the, them bumping into each other on the sidewalk? That doesn't even make sense to me. And that's almost like that's too out of character for Puppet. Because while we do see obviously tendencies towards violence, we haven't actually see him be violent in this movie. I mean, I guess pointing a gun, but it's a fake gun. So even his threats yeah. of violence are fake. So it just would have been such a weird choice to end it with the yeah. act of murder, which I just I don't think that works, which it's then interesting 30, 40 years later. That scene does come to fruition with Robert De Niro just on the other side of that. In Joker. In Joker, which is, it's we're coming full circle here. But with that said, I love this movie. This yeah. is, like I said, it might be my favorite Scorsese. I haven't watched them all. I'm watching them all in this series. But before we leave, Brian, I just wanted to ask you a few questions to end this show. First, could you give me your personal top five for Scorsese? Ooh, my personal top five. Okay, so I would say Alice doesn't live here anymore. I think another kind of underrated Scorsese mm. film. I love that movie with Ellen Burstyn. She won the Oscar for Best Actress. Um, oh, man. And Taxi Driver is close, but I got to pick one of his newer movies. So I'm going to go with Alice doesn't live here anymore, Raging Bull, The King of Comedy, Goodfellas, which is my favorite Scorsese. It's, it's not quite in my top 10 of all time, but it's definitely in my top 20. That movie is amazing like mm -hmm. i always tell people if you've never seen a scorsese movie start with that one <laughs> that yeah. one's great and then if i had to pick one of his uh newer films i would go with the wolf of wall street is amazing like i remember just sitting there in bliss for three hours with my dad in 2013 loving this movie and about 30 minutes in an old man stood up turned to the audience and said this movie is filth and walked have, out of the theater <laughs> i had that same response in the theater where when I saw Babylon, five, <laughs> I think I saw it in a theater of like 10 people because it was like opening yeah. night, no one was there. And there was this group of like, I want to say like five of them, like all 60 plus retirees. And halfway <laughs> through the party sequence in the first act of the movie, yeah. like which is just the first act of the movie, I'm forgetting what point it is, but it's, it's during, oh, I think it's like, there might be a stripper sequence slash uh, genitalia <laughs> everywhere, but yeah. They just stand up and leave and they don't come back. And then like <laughs> maybe 30 minutes later, there's another, the next couple just leaves after it. And I think by the end of it, there's like three of us and they're all just leaving in these like really disgusted looks like what is happening. And Wolf of Wall Street's one of the few movies that actually makes me feel hungover after watching it. <laughs> by the end of the movie, I'm like, oh my God, I need to like, I need a water. It's yeah. Just, I, I feel exhausted. 
I mean, that scene in Wolf of Wall Street with the Quaaludes, like with Jonah Hill and Leo DiCaprio, when DiCaprio is trying to get to the car by just like using just like, he's like, he's like going down the steps. That, that is one of the hardest I've laughed in a movie in the last 10 years. It is a, that is hilarious. That DiCaprio (laughs) did not win his Oscar for that. That should have been his Oscar. That should have been his Oscar. Over the revenue. Like over, over McConaughey, it should have been Leonardo as Jordan Belfort. Uh, so we have your personal top five. Uh, last two questions to end the show. Who is somebody that you would love to see work with Scorsese in the future? Ooh, I mean, how many more movies do you think we get from Scorsese? What is he now? 81, 82? 82. I think by the time Killers comes out, he's 81. Yeah, so That's he's, I mean, between this and the Irishman, he's, 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 he's going slower. So I don't know. He's I would hope we have an, next. I would hope we have another at least three films after Killers of the Flower Moon. We I mean, have Clint Eastwood's sure. directing a new movie right now, and he's not ninety three. He is ninety three. <laughs> we know for a fact he has Jesus coming out next. Like that is. Oh, he has announced what his next film is. Yeah, it's the Life of Jesus Christ, which is oh. interesting that he's returning to that after uh, Last Temptation and even a little bit Silence. But who would yeah, be but like who would be an actor who I'd love to see work with him? I mean, they've never collaborated, and she's one of my favorites. I would love to see what he would do with Kate Winslet in a movie. Oh, he's so great. And she she does period films really well. I feel like lately we get a lot of period films from Scorsese. Like a film where she was the lead, like where Kate Winslet was the lead of a Scorsese movie. You could probably just give her the second Oscar right there. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to whatever ask it may be, because <laughs> I thought you were going another way, and I was trying to think of this this morning. Has Meryl Streep ever been in a Scorsese film? Well, my yeah, my three favorite actresses are Kate Winslet, Sandra Bullock, and Meryl Streep. I can't see Sandra Bullock collaborating. That would be that'd be weird. But like, yeah, this came up in the last few years. How, especially in the last. By what 20 years like Meryl Streep doesn't typically work with like auteur directors like really great kind of who we think of as like auteurs like a Paul Thomas Anderson mm-hmm. or a Quentin Tarantino typically her directors are more not run-of-the-mill but like not quite at that level which was why a movie like Adaptation was so exciting her working with Spike Jones, who's so mm-hmm. fantastic um yeah and I remember it came up once like what would happen if Scorsese and Meryl Streep collaborated on a film like well all I can tell you is I'd be there at the very first screening yeah exactly. <laughs> I'd be there on day one and before I let you leave last question I have for you is who is somebody that never got to chance to work with Martin Scorsese before they pass that as a film fan you would want to see but you would have just uh, so he included her character in a movie and that character won uh Kate Blanchett the Oscar for best supporting actress I would have loved Catherine Hepburn to collaborate with Scorsese on a film like in the 70s or early 80s that would have been interesting it probably probably would have been a supporting role most of her roles in the 70s and on are supporting but uh wonder what they could have done together like in a really cool 70s piece I would have loved to have seen that that. Like that pick a lot. All right, Brian, thank you for joining me on today's episode. Before I let you leave, where can the people find you? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Brian Rowe. That's M R Brian Rowe. And check out my YouTube channel, The Awards Contender. Uh, you can also search my name, Brian Rowe. And I have uh, over 130 videos now 
up on YouTube. Uh, you can also find me all over the web. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm at a lot of different places, but the main two places to find me are uh, at Twitter and on YouTube. Perfect. And thank you, Brian. And I'll make sure that all those links are in the description below. My name is Ben Friedman here from the Beniverse Movie Channel. Thank you all so much for watching. If you like this video, make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast, YouTube, whatever channel you're watching this on. Thank you so much. Take care and bye-bye.